Well, today we're in this, uh, this part of this series that we're entitling Finding an Awesome Mate. And I want to ask you this question this morning. Is there anything more awkward than dating, really? Uh, so some of you may have been really smooth at it. As a matter of fact, if you feel like either back in the day or even currently if you're single, if you feel like you were, you're just kind of, you're smooth, like when it comes to dating, you, you've got that thing nailed. Go ahead and raise your hand if you were good or you consider yourself even today. Okay, Tom, of course, I would expect no less. Carrie, obviously, obviously. A couple of guys and uh, their spouses are sitting beside them like, no, that is not the way it went down, not at all. Well, uh, me, not so much. I feel like dating was just always one of those awkward things that, you know, you're trying to put this best foot forward and make this great impression, but it just, it doesn't always come together so well. So last night I was asking my wife, what do you think was the most awkward part, like, of our dating relationship? And she just started laughing. She was like, which, which one? Like, which example do you want me to give you? And uh, I said, just, okay, just pick, easy now, just pick the worst one, you know, and so she said, you know, it probably has to do with our engagement story. And we sat and laughed about it last night. So let me tell you a little bit about our engagement. Uh, when my wife and I, uh, when I asked her to marry me, uh, at the time, I was living up here, but I had gone to school in Georgia, or, and my brother lived in, just outside of Atlanta. So we had planned this trip to go down and really introduce um, my girlfriend at the time, to my brother and his wife. And so we made this trip down to the Atlanta area. And while we were there, um, I had this whole plan. So I took her out to eat um, at the Peachtree Towers in downtown Atlanta, which has a revolving restaurant on the top. Uh, but I was so poor that I think we only had dessert, if I remember correctly, because <laughs> I couldn't afford to feed her a full meal. But uh, we went from there down to Atlanta Underground, which 25 years ago was a pretty happening place in Atlanta. Just a lot of shops that they had, had redone under the old city of Atlanta. Real, real crowded place. And she didn't know this, but I had a lot of my friends from the South who she had never met before were all there and waiting for us to arrive. And so my one friend who she had never met before comes up and says, are you Rick and Jen? And I, we said, yeah. And I acted like I didn't know who it was. And he pulls out this big bullhorn and announces, would everyone please gather around as we witness this moment? And I, my wife's like, uh, and I'm down on one knee when she turns around, you know, and, and uh, you know, I ask her to marry me. And I think because of the pressure of the crowd, she said yes, which was good. <laughs> And so, so that whole moment happened and, you know, then all the people who I knew that she was getting to know gathered in and they were all celebrating with us. It's just a great moment for me. Now, things you got to know about my wife, just a few things to understand about her. Number one, she does not like cities. Cities make her nervous. Like she likes to be in and out of a city for whatever we're going to see or do in the city. Let's get in and out quickly. She just, that's not her vibe. It's not her deal. Second thing, my wife, um, usually when we go out to eat at restaurants, because of preservatives and other things and a sensitive stomach that she has, she doesn't really like to eat out at places where she doesn't know what the menu is or because oftentimes it makes her not feel so well. And so because I took her there, she ate things she didn't feel well that night as well. So this is part of her experience of the evening. And then she's also not a fan of crowds, uh, like lots of people gathered around. And so I kind of hit the trifecta in what ended up being a great uh, moment for me in asking her to marry me, but was not for her as she looks back on it, the whole thing, she just kind of laughs about it because it was not her at all, you know, but I thought I was pretty smooth. Anyway, Today we're moving forward in this series, and this series is really about awesome relationships. We're talking about how to make the most important relationships in your life awesome. 
The first week we talked about an awesome relationship with God and how that's foundational to all of our other relationships. Last week we t- looked at the, uh, the life of David and Jonathan um, and how uh, Jason uh, did a great job taking us through their story together and how Jonathan offered himself in friendship to David and David in return. Today we're going to talk about this, this idea of how we can discover an awesome mate in life. But let me give you a few asides before we get this started today. The first is this. Some of you might be thinking, well... You're old and married now, so how do you know what it's like to be single today? Uh, I have a hunch that some of you might kind of tune me out today uh, because I've been married for longer than some of you have been alive. Basically, if you're 23 or under, I've been married longer than, than you've been on the planet. So you might think, well, what do you know about dating today and that thing? And that's a fair question. So I will need a little grace from you on that today. But I do want to share this with you. I wasn't always married, so I do know what it's like to find an awesome mate because by the grace of God, I found one. Um, Secondly, I also know what it's like to struggle through applying the principles of God's word firsthand to your life and your relationships. And I understand that part of the journey. And I believe that God has principles for us that can be unbelievably not just helpful, but can be foundational to us as we move forward in life, wanting to know and have the confidence that we're making decisions that honor God and that are, uh, are his best for us. So others of you might be saying, hey, I don't want an awesome mate. You know, you're tempted to tune me out because you're here this morning and you're thinking, I'm just awesome by myself and I have no plans to go and find an awesome mate. I'm good with all this awesomeness on my own. And if that's you today and you're not called to be married, that's okay because Paul actually says in the scripture, in the Bible, he says it's better to be single than to be married. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, he said, but I wish everyone were single just as I am. He said, yet each person has a special gift from God of one kind or another. So I say to those who aren't married and to the widows, it is better to stay unmarried just as I am. So Paul himself was single and just saying, hey, if you're called to it, it's not that bad. Like, there can be a lot of good in remaining single. You know, I often wonder if Paul heard some of the annoying things that married people say to single people. Trying to, I don't know, just have conversation. Things like, Paul, you're single? Why are you still single? You know, I'm sure Paul heard some of those things. Uh, or I'm sure Paul had aunts, right? And every time they would see him, they would say, Paul, are you dating anybody yet? I know the perfect girl for you. That kind of thing. Or a classic, uh, don't worry, Paul, you'll find the right one someday. You'll find the right person for you. Or this is one that I loved when I was single. And people would come up and ask me, you're single? So, so when are you going to get married? And I remember thinking, I don't know, Thursday next Saturday, some year on a sunny day in June? Like, how do you answer that question if you're single? When are you going to get married? (laughs) I don't know how to answer your question. So if you're single, you have to put up with a lot of irritating comments from the rest of us. Um, And I don't know why we say such annoying things to you, because according to Paul, singleness really is a gift. So if you're like Paul and you love being single, that's awesome. Uh, But I'd encourage you to still listen in today because you never know when things are going to change. And you never know when the day may come where you might be interested in finding an awesome mate. I also want to give uh, uh, kind of this little aside today. I know that when we say single, that we're talking about a lot of different kinds of people. There are singles who are here who have never been married. Some of you are here today and you're single because you've 
been widowed or you're single because you've been divorced. And some of you are here today and you're coming out of your teenage years and into your early 20s and suddenly for the first time in your life, you're lumped into this category, this status called single. And uh, you may suddenly, you know, you never thought about that while you were a teenager in school and now you're checking boxes in the, in the adult world that just puts you into that category. And all of a sudden, you're, you're realizing that that is your status. And we want you to know that if you're here today and you're a single person, we want you to know that you are valued as a part of God's family, that we value you for who you are and we value you for what you bring to God's family as well. So there's, there are lots of different reasons that people are single, but a big motivation for us to spend the time and do this particular message today is that if the latest statistics are accurate, 80% of us in this room will be married at one point or another in our life. 80% of us will be married at some point in our life. And that's a lot of people. So if you desire to be married, how do you go about finding an awesome mate? How do you do that in a way that honors God and in a way that can, can uh, really lean in on God's principles for us? Well, one thing that we don't want for you is we don't want you to settle. We don't want you to settle. Let's watch this together. I think I'm a pretty good catch. So why can't I meet the right guy? I've tried all the online dating apps like Tinder, OkCupid, and Match.com, but I want to get married now. That's why I joined the new online dating app, Settle. There's nothing wrong with the men on Settle. They're just normal guys with characteristics I am now willing to overlook. I already bought my wedding dress, so I just needed a groom. I joined Settle and went on tons of okay dates. That's how I met my Henry. He may drive a smart car, but he's a manager at Petco and even has a 401k. We're getting married in April, which is before my sister. Settle isn't misleading like those other dating apps. It's honest. For example, men are only allowed to upload their passport photos or ones of them pretending to hold the leading tower of Pisa. That way we can't focus on their looks. Hi. Sorry I'm late. I don't have a car. Whatever. And they're guaranteed a date because Settle won't allow us to swipe left. Because remember, it's not giving up, it's settling up. <laughs> Settle. Tick tock. Would you like to have another glass of wine? Oh, no, thank you. I I'm usually in bed by now. <laughs> All right. We got to keep this light today, right? This uh, topic can have a lot of uh, intensity to it. And uh, so we honestly want to look to God's word today and say, all right, God, we don't want to settle. We want your best. And how do we know God's best? Well, we look to him. So how do I find an awesome mate? What wisdom can we discover from God's word about finding someone awesome to marry? I don't know if you know this, but there are actually several love stories in the Bible that the Bible gives us a lot of detail about how those people came into relationship and kind of what their, the details of their love story are. And today we're going to look at one of them that's found near the beginning of the Bible in the book of Genesis, in Genesis chapter 24. And I would love it if you take out uh, your Bibles today, if you have them with you, you can turn to Genesis 24. If not in your outlines today, a lot of the scripture will be in there, but because we're covering a lot of ground today, some of it will not be. We'll have all of the scripture up on the screens for you, uh, but you may want to follow along in your Bible or, or on your outline as well. 
And here's something I want to mention too. For all of you married, you old married folk who are here today like me, um, there is never a time that we open God's word that there's not something that can uh, benefit you. So even though our topic today is focused on how to find a great mate, I know this week even as I prepared the message, there were so many different things that God spoke to me about how I can learn to hear from him and trust him in the decisions in my life. Uh, So you don't get a pass today, all right? You can still tune in as well. So the love story that we're going to look at today starts with a guy and a girl, and the guy's name is Abraham, and the girl's name is Sarah. And if you're familiar with them, you remember that this is the same Abraham and Sarah through whom God said that he would bless the entire world with descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky or the sands on the seashore. But there was a problem with that in that Abraham Abraham and Sarah had only had one son in their older age, and his name was Isaac. But now Abraham and Sarah were growing older and Isaac was not married. So they were getting a little concerned that God had made this giant promise that was going to happen to and through their lives. And yet their only son uh, had not even found a mate yet at this point in his life. So, um, but Abraham and Sarah uh, decided that they were still going to trust God even through this. So let me read in Genesis 24 verses 1 through 4. Abraham was now very old, and the Lord had blessed him in every way. He said to the senior servant in his household, the one in charge of all that he had, put your hand under my thigh. Okay, we're going to pause right there. There are some times when you read things in scripture and we just move beyond them that I think merit a little bit of explanation. So at this time, when I first read this this week, I kind of passed over it and then I came back and said, all right, what was happening there? So in our culture today, if we want to ratify a covenant or an agreement with each other, sometimes that happens verbally and we verbally agree to something together. Other times people will agree to something on a handshake. Sometimes people will sign something in agreement. They'll write their name. They'll put it on a line. Other times people will even come in front of a notary, right? And they'll sign an agreement in front as, with someone else as a witness that, hey, we made this covenant or we walked into this agreement together. Back in uh, Abraham's day, the way that you signified a covenant or a way that you signified a covenant or an agreement was that you decided to slide your hand under this person's sweaty thigh. So this bothered me a little bit, and I was trying to discern what is the reason behind this. Well, some of it is exactly what you would think, and that was that when you make an agreement with someone, if you're willing to say, hey, I'm putting your, my hand under your thigh, almost in a, uh, a way of intimacy, if I'm willing to do that, you know I'm willing to walk this thing out with you. But there's a bigger picture in all of this that I think is important for us to see, and that's that, uh, stating this as politically correctly as I can, for a male, the thigh area is the area of reproduction and of your lineage and of your line. And so when you were making an oath and putting your hand under someone's thigh, you were saying, for all that is in me, for my future, for my descendants, for my, my, all of my commitment, I swear on my family and on all that is me, kind of the most representing the most intimate place that I could make that covenant with you. I'm making that covenant with you. I'm making that commitment with you. So here's Abraham and he's asking his servant to come over and put his hand under his thigh and make that level of commitment to you. So this is expressing a deep level of commitment. Everybody get it? We okay with that? All right, (laughs) let's move on. So this is put your hand under my thigh. I want you to swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of the earth, that you will not get a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I'm currently living. But you will go to my country and my own relatives and get a wife for my son, Isaac. 
So as we pick up the story, Abraham is now a very, very old man, and he knows that he's not going to be alive much longer. He's concerned uh, about God's promise to bless him with these many descendants. He's concerned about that promise coming to fruition because he doesn't have, his son doesn't have a wife. So like any good meddling parent, Abraham takes matters into his own hands. Um, I actually don't believe that's true. I believe Abraham was stepping out in faith, believing that God was going to provide a wife. And you can see by what follows that that's true. He calls on his senior servant, Eleazar. And the Bible says his senior servant, his most seasoned servant. And he says, I want to entrust this very important thing to you, Eleazar. This thing that is maybe more important to me than any of the other promises that God has made. And I want to entrust it to you. I'm not able to go because I'm a very old man and I can't travel anymore. But I'm entrusting this important thing to you. And he says to him, um, go out and find a wife for my son, Isaac. And these are the criteria that Abraham gives to Eleazar. He says, number one, this wife that you find can't be a Canaanite because if she's a Canaanite, there's a chance that she would follow a pagan god or would have had a history of following a pagan god. And that's not acceptable. Abraham says, she must be from my own country, someone who loves the same god that I love. That was the bottom line. Nothing else is more important than you going out and finding a woman for my son who loves the same God that I've loved and trusted and given my life to. So Eleazar sets off on this journey to Abraham's homeland. And uh, beginning in verse 12, it says this. This is speaking of Eleazar. It says, then he prayed. This is how Eleazar gets started. Lord God of my master Abraham, make me successful today and show kindness to my master Abraham. See, I am standing beside this spring and the daughters of the townspeople are coming out to draw water. May it be that when I say to a young woman, please let down your jar that I may have a drink, and she says, drink, and I'll water your camels too, let her be the one that you have chosen for your servant Isaac. By this I will know that you have shown kindness to my master. So here's Eleazar when he arrives at his destination. He comes to this watering well, and the thing that he does first is to pray. He says, This isn't just my assignment that I'm to carry out in my own strength. This is God's assignment from my master Abraham, and I want to do this on God's wisdom. I want to do it your way, God. And so he prays. He knows that his assignment is a big deal. He asks for God's guidance. He says, God, would you help me identify the right woman for Isaac through this sign? And this woman's willingness to not only give him a drink, but also to water his camels too. And I read uh, this week that in one, kind of one moment, camels can drink up to 30 gallons of water. So if this, if she's giving not only him a drink of water, but also his camel, this could have been a lot of work. Like this didn't happen like, oh, here's a sip for you and here's a sip for your camel. He had multiple camels. And if she was not only willing to water him, but to water his camels as well, this could have been a significant uh, offer that she was making in that moment. So, um, sorry I got lost there in the story. Very excited about all of this. <laughs> uh, so, um, the woman's willingness to give him a drink and water his camels is what's most important. So he hasn't even finished praying yet. Eleazar hasn't even finished praying when this beautiful woman approaches. Now, guys, don't you wish it was that easy? <laughs> Sit down and you say one prayer and this this woman shows up before you're even done praying. Her name is Rebecca. And when Eleazar asked her for a drink of water, listen to what happens next, starting in verse 17. The servant hurried to meet her and said, please give me a little water from your jar. And she said, drink, my Lord. 
and quickly lowered the jar to her hands and gave him a drink. After she had given him a drink, she said, I'll draw water for your camels too until they have had enough to drink. Talk about a big answer to prayer in this moment. Can you imagine the excitement uh, in this moment that Eleazar had when he put this fleece out before the Lord and then within moments, this answer uh, comes to him. She not only gives him water, but she goes above and beyond and makes this offer to feed his animals as well. And I don't know what the modern day parallel is to that. Uh, you know, uh, would you give me something to drink and would you come back to my house and feed my dog? I don't know. Uh, but in that time, taking care of, put gas in my car. How about that? There you go. That might be a good parallel. But this was a step of Rebecca going out of her way. So, you know, they talk. Rebecca invites him to come to her home to meet her family, and Eleazar takes her up on that offer. Eleazar goes home with Rebecca and meets her family, and they, they totally hit it off together. And he's praying the whole time, and then he explains this to Rebecca's family. Listen to this, starting in verse 24, and this is in your outline this morning. It says, The Lord has blessed my master Abraham abundantly, and he's become wealthy God has given him sheep and cattle and silver and gold and male and female servants and camels and donkeys. My master's wife, Sarah, has borne him a son in her old age, and he has given him everything that he owns. And my master made me swear on an oath and said, you must not get a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites in whose land I live, but go to my father's family and to my own clan and get a wife for my son. Eleazar says, that's why I'm here. And he explains all that he's been through. And he, he says, he not only explains the journey that he's been on, but he tells her how he believes God has been in all of this. And Rebecca and her family believe all of this is from God. So Rebecca agrees to leave with Eleazar and to go back to Abraham's house to meet his son, Isaac. And some of you are thinking right now, this sounds a lot more like a reality TV show, right? <laughs> Enter into a foreign land, find a woman, bring her back, see if she's willing to, to agree to marriage. But my favorite part of this story is when Rebecca arrives and she sees Isaac. And this is in Genesis 24, verses 64 and 65. It says, Rebecca also looked up and saw Isaac. She got down from her camel and asked the servant, who is that man in the field coming to meet us? And I don't know if this is true or not, but I know that when guys hear it read that way, every guy in the room is, is thinking that she said it this way, who is that guy in the field coming to meet me? I don't know if that's real or not, but like any love, great love story, it ends like this in Genesis chapter 24, verse 67, it says, and he married Rebecca, so she became his wife and he loved her. So from this passage today, we're gonna look at this, this kind of one picture that we get in scripture of this relationship, kind of this, this coming together and looking for a mate. And we're going to look at some principles that we see. And I wish, uh, you know, when I read it in this context and kind of pull out the highlights, it sounds like, wow, all of this happened so quickly and then they lived ha happily ever after. And I know that that's not true in all of our stories. I know that it doesn't always happen that way. It's not always easy to find a mate. But I think there's a lot of wisdom that we can draw from God's word today. And the first bit of wisdom is this. This is uh, the number one thing today. Look for someone who makes a lot of money. <laughs> no, that's not it, but it did fit in the blanks well. Look for someone who makes God number one. Look for someone who makes God number one. First of all, look for someone who prioritizes God in their lives. Pretty much the only criteria that Eleazar was given for selecting the right mate was this. Find someone among my own people. Find someone who follows my God. Find someone who loves my God the way I do. 
for my son. That's the starting point. The starting point is not good looks. The starting point is not wealth. The starting point is not intellect. The starting point that Eleazar has given is find someone who loves God deeply. Make sure you pick someone who makes God number one. What does that look like? You know, at Daybreak, we, we talk about wanting to be people who are surrendered to God, but who are beyond that, who are transformed by God. People who come into a relationship with Jesus, God's son, and when we come into relationship with him, we surrender to him and we say, Jesus, would you be leader of my life? And would you be the forgiver of my life? But I'm giving you permission to transform me by the work of your Holy Spirit inside of me. I want you to change me so that I become more like you. And that in that work of transformation in us, that that's the work. It's not just a one-time decision to trust Christ. It's an everyday decision to allow God to continue to transform us into the image of his son, Jesus, so that we can be about reflecting Christ in the world that we live in, finding our ultimate purpose in being people who carry out God's mission of love in this world. Because we're each designed uniquely to reflect Christ through the way that we were created. And that's God's ultimate dream for us, his ultimate goal for us. So when we talk about that here at Daybreak, we talk about celebrating God in worship. We talk about connecting with God's family and contributing to God's work in this world. And it, when we do that, it indicates something about how serious we are about the spiritual journey that we're on, how committed we are to putting God first in our life. So I want to ask you this morning, as you're looking at a person that you might be considering in, to go into a deeper relationship with or to move towards marriage with, does this person worship God with their life? Are they a part of a church where they're learning about God and celebrating the great things that God is doing in their life and not only worshiping him with a church family, but worshiping him in the day-to-day is this a person who connects? Is this a person who, or is this a person who tries to live life on their own? They don't have people around them. Because if you find a person who connects with other people who they allow to pour into their life, you found a person who makes, who is open to becoming more and more like Jesus as those rough edges are rubbed off, as we come into community together, and as people help others help us grow and become more like Christ. Another question for you to ask yourself is, does this person, is, are they a contributor? Is this person that I'm interested in using their gifts to make a difference in the world? Are they allowing what God has built them to do to be surrendered to him so that they can have impact wherever they are? Or is their world mostly centered on them? These are important questions to ask because they tell you a lot about a person. And for, when you're looking for someone who makes God number one in his or her life, I want to encourage you to look in places where you might find somebody who has actually done that. You probably all are familiar with the old song, looking for love in all the wrong places. Looking for love in all the wrong I thought you might start singing. Not enough old country fans here today, but uh, looking for love in all the wrong places. We know the song because songs are written as reflections of people's experience. Looking for love in too many faces. We do that. We go out and we look for love when our need and our heart and our emotion overwhelms what we know is best. We go out and we look for love in places where we're probably not going to find people who can really love us, and we settle. And when we settle for less than God's best, then we miss out on so many things that God has for us in life. Do you know where a good place to look for a future mate is? It's in places where people who are fully surrendered to God gather. In churches, 
in places where God's people, people who are committed to coming together and live their life in a way that honors God, that's a great place. Wherever those places are, that's a great place for you to look for a spouse, a future mate. And here's an even better thought. Instead of spending all of your time looking for someone who makes God number one, how about you become the person who makes God number one? Because this amazing thing happens when you become the person who makes God number one. People who want that are drawn to you. And that's actually good advice for all of us when it comes to relationships. And we talked about this last week when we talked about friendship, that we need to be an awesome friend if we want to have an awesome friend. And the same is true of finding someone who makes God number one. We need to become the person that the person we are looking for is looking for. Did you catch that? We need to become the person that the person that we're looking for is looking for. As you're looking for the person who makes God number one, work on making your God number one in your own life as well. So the first bit of wisdom for finding an awesome mate is to look for someone who makes God number one. And the second bit of wisdom for finding an awesome mate is to look to people who love you for confirmation. Look to people who love you for confirmation. If we go back to our love story with Isaac and Rebecca, do you know Isaac and Rebecca didn't date? As a matter of fact, dating wasn't even a thing at that time, which we'll get to in just a minute. But historically, dating has only been popular for the last few hundred years. And by comparison, it's not really been that successful in leading to long-term committed relationships. What happened between Isaac and Rebecca is really more of what people would call an arranged marriage. Abraham, the father, he sets the criteria. He decides what kind of woman would be best for his son. And then he sends out his most trusted servant to find the right girl. And Isaac never even meets Rebecca until the servant brings her home. So believe it or not, there's a lot to be said for arranged marriages. For example, when, a couple, um, when couples marry with emotional love as their starting point, about half of those marriages end in divorce. And when you contrast that to when couples marry as a result of an arrangement set up by their families, that divorce rate drops to between 5 and 10%. Now, let me give you a little caveat. A lot of those arranged marriages are in countries where once that marriage is arranged, you are not allowed to get out of it or you will die. <laughs> so that skews the statistics just a little bit as we look at this today. Um, and as, but as parents today, you know, maybe we ought to be considering uh, making some arrangements for our kids, right? My wife always promises our boys that if, if they'll let her pick their wives, that she will pick awesome wives for them. And you can imagine the look on their faces at the thought of that. Um, I'm, I'm actually not advocating for arranged marriages today, but I think there is wisdom that the Bible gives us in telling us to look to the people who love you for confirmation before you pick a mate. And here's why. Our hearts and our emotions often cloud our best judgment. And that's not just true in this area of picking a, a mate. That's true in a lot of areas of our life. Our hearts and our emotions in the moment often skew what is good discernment or what's godly, our best judgment, what's godly counsel. Did you, did you know that they call the first stage of a relationship the infatuation stage? And it usually lasts about three months to 18 months. So um, if you're here today, at, at, let me, well, let me tell you what that stage is characterized by. That stage is marked by an emotional dependency, and that's best defined as 
a constant thinking about the other person. So if you're here today and you're in a relationship and you've made it to 18 months and you're still in the infatuation stage, which means you are constantly thinking about that other person, you've made it longer than most, okay? If you're here today and you're in a relationship and you're about three months in and this relationship is starting to become pretty real to you, huh, this person isn't all of that and a bag of chips. If that's happening in your life, then you probably are exiting the infatuation stage. And here's what often happens when we come to the end of that stage. When that, when that stage starts to fade, people believe that they're not in love anymore. They believe, well, I must not love this person anymore because what they thought was love was really just based on emotion and need in that particular time. So if you're a single person who wants to find an awesome mate, let me urge you strongly that to have humility, have the humility and courage to go to the people who you love the most and ask them for their honest and genuine input. You might want to go to a family member or a friend or a spiritual mentor, anybody in your life that you can go to long before the engagement and say, hey, I'm about to make a really big decision in my life. I'm about to move into a stage in this relationship that may be hard for me to turn around from, and I need to know from you, how do you see us as a couple? What are the strengths that you see in our relationship? What are the weaknesses that you might see? What are some things that could cause us trouble down the road? And here's the other part of what makes this work. If you're part of the friends and family, uh, spiritual influencers of the people who are coming and asking you that question, you gotta learn to speak the truth in love to these people, right? How do you love them well? Not by, they're not asking you to make the decision for them. They're wanting to hear wisdom from you. And you've got to know how to love them well by sharing that wisdom in such a way that can be helpful for them that they can go on and make their own decision about the relationship. And here's another point, uh, good thought before I leave this point. Another way to have confirmation about whether or not you're, you're marrying the right person is to go through premarital counseling where you can get some great counsel. Because the genius of premarital counseling is that it helps you identify areas where you're gonna have conflict in advance so that you can be proactive and work on those issues before they ever really become issues in your relationship. That's stuff like finances and relational skills and sexuality and your feelings about parenting, division of labor around the house, and it goes on and on. But if you can have those conversations with someone in advance, they may be able to help you. We actually have a tool at Daybreak that we use with a lot of our premaritals. It's called the Prepare Inventory. And uh, both uh, members of the couple take the inventory. And what it does is it just reflects, hey, based on your family of origin, at Daybreak, we like to call that your foo. Uh, based on your foo and their foo, this is the stuff that you could run into. Based on what you have known and experienced, based on who they are, based on your personalities and how you see life and how idealistic you are or how practical you are, all of those things come together. These are some areas that could be strengths from you, for you as a couple. And these are some areas that could be growth areas for you as a couple as well. That's a great tool. We can help you walk through it as a staff. If you're contemplating uh, taking a step towards marriage, uh, we'd love to be a part of helping you out on your journey in that way. So, all right, let's review. Three bits of wisdom on finding an awesome mate. Number one, look for someone who makes God number one. Number two, look to people who you love for confirmation. And bit of wisdom number three, look to God for guidance. Look to God for guidance. If we go back to our love story, the story is thick with prayer all the way through. 
It started with prayer to find the right person. In Genesis 24, 12, Eleazar says, Lord, God of my master Abraham, make me successful today. And then when Eleazar uh, thought that he had met the right person, he prayed and the Bible says he fell on his knees before God to worship and, and in confirmation, God, is this the right person? And then he continued to pray. Even after he was sure that he found the right one, he continued to bring it before God in prayer. He prayed and asked God to be in the whole process God, would you be all the way through this so there's not a question or a doubt that it didn't come from your hand, that this isn't what you provided for me? He didn't want to rely on his own wisdom at all. He didn't want to settle for anything less than God's best. This summer, we're going to teach through the book of James as a church family because we all need wisdom for the choices that we have to face on so many different levels in our lives. And James 1.5 says this, if any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault and it will be given to you. God has wisdom for you. He has wisdom for us. But he's not going to force it on us. He wants us to ask him. He wants us to come to him. He wants to be engaged in every part of the process of the decisions that you and I have to make, especially the big relational decisions that we have to make. And he says, I want you to learn to trust me. I have what's best for you if you can come to me and ask and trust me. And truth be told, next to your decision to put your faith and your trust in God, finding a spouse or finding a mate is probably the biggest, if not one of the biggest decisions you'll make in your life. So just like Eleazar did in the story, pray for God. Pray, for, pray to God for wisdom to find the right person. Pray to confirm that it's the right person. And then even when you get to the place where you're in relationship with the person you, you believe is the right person, continue to pray and ask God for wisdom in that relationship. Some people will ask, okay, I can pray, but how do I know for sure? Do I put out some kind of fleece before God like Eleazar did? Do I, do I ask God to give me some miraculous sign? Well, my experience has taught me to take the time to pray and process big decisions with God. And here are a few guiding principles that can help us with this. We can look for God's wisdom through these four different ways, through Scripture, does scripture speak clearly to this? Is, does this align with biblical morality? Is this part of God's plan and his design? Is this part of God's sovereign will? A second is through love. Am I making a decision based on love? Love for others? Love for God? Or is this decision really too much all about me and what I want or what I need in this moment? Jesus said that love was the basis of all of the law, of all of the prophets, of all of scripture. The third is good counsel. Have you asked others to help you consider the facts in the relationship? Because often others will help you see what you can't see. And the fourth is God's spirit. Have you asked God's spirit to lead you into truth? To help you see your current circumstance and your current relationship the way that God sees it? My wife and I have made a practice of doing this with all of the big decisions that we've made in our life. From the two of us getting married, to having kids, to adoption, to buying our home, uh, to big financial commitments. And we've done this in the big stuff because, I'll be honest with you, because we knew, we knew that if God wasn't involved in it, we might misstep. But here's what I want to tell you we've learned. 
when you learn how to have God completely involved in the big decisions, then it's a no-brainer to involve God in the day-to-day decisions in your life. Because then you start to say, all right, Lord, I don't know what I should do with my day today. I've got a couple of different options. God, would you help me know how to walk out this day-to-day? Because you've patterned the big decisions of your life in trusting God, and you've seen God work in the big ways, and you've put down markers in life, and you remember, God, when I trusted you with that big thing and you came through, it changed me. And so now... I can trust you with the other things in my life. And I want to start this pattern of learning how to trust you consistently. When we trust God and in that trust, in that search for what his heart desires for us, we find peace. Philippians chapter four, verses six and seven say, don't worry worry about or be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God which goes beyond all your understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. God asks us to bring all of our requests before him. If you're single here today and you're looking for a mate, God is saying, bring your request to me so that you don't have to worry and so that you can experience my peace because you know I'm involved in this process. And the more that you lean into that process of trusting God, the more that your heart's gonna find peace because your confidence that you have is not in your own ability to find what's best for you, but you're trusting in God's ability and what's best for you. You know, I want to end with just saying this this morning. Sometimes when you hear something like I've communicated to you this morning, you think, God's best for me. Man, the bar must be way up here. I'm never going to find that person. I'm never going to be that person. Look, God knows we're all on the journey. And he's got incredible grace for all of us. And sometimes people will come to me and say, like, I don't know if I can move on in this relationship because sometimes this person gets really angry. Or I don't know if I can move on in this relationship because sometimes this person is really moody and they're up and down and discouraged. And I say, have you ever been angry or discouraged? Like, yeah, they're real people. Now, I don't say that today to say, if you're in a relationship with someone and they're over the top angry or they're over the top depressed, that you shouldn't consider that as a major factor in getting into a close relationship with them. It is important for you to know that and consider that. But what I'm saying is this, you will never find the perfect mate because you will never be the perfect mate this side of heaven, right? There is no perfect mate or perfect marriage. But here's what I don't want you to miss today. There's a process of wisdom that God can lead you through to help you find his best. And when he's involved in it, you can look at the person that you're considering marrying and you can say, because they put God first, I know that I can have confidence that God will lead us through these struggles, both that you have and both that the person that you're gonna marry. If you say, because that's a person who entrusts their life to other people and they have good people around them who help them grow, I can trust God that you're gonna do good things in this relationship. Because this is a person who gives their life They contribute what they have, their time, their talent, and their treasure to others. Their life isn't fully centered on them. I can believe and trust, God, that you're going to take us on this journey together. We're going to continue to grow as we trust you together. We want to help you on that journey. God wants to help you on that journey because he's a really, really great matchmaker. He's the best. Would you bow your heads with me? Lord, today we are so thankful that we're part of a church family that we get to be involved in each other's journey. 
that we help each other not settle for anything other than your best. Lord, I thank you that those of us who are here who are married today and have families, that you offer us the opportunity to be an encouragement to people who are single. And instead of causing them pain through awkward things that we might say, would you help us, God, to be good brothers and sisters in our family by loving them well? God, you invite us to be one family united as brothers and sisters, single and married. Today, we pray for our brothers and sisters who are single. Would you help them, Lord, never to settle for less than your best? Would you give them grace and peace as they learn to walk out this season with you and trust you in this season? Lord, remind them that they never walk alone when they walk with you. Father, thank you for helping us live out these principles we saw this morning, for helping us commit to look for people who make you, put you first, to help us to ask people for counsel who we have relationship with, who we trust. And Father, mostly remind us, God, to come to you and ask you for wisdom always. Thank you, Lord, for the love stories that we find in your word that give us guidance for finding awesome an awesome mate. And thank you for helping us develop relationships that are awesome as well. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.